0: Welcome to Brain Bites, a podcast produced by the Brain Injury Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, where we provide education and resources for clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal diagnosis and treatment. An individual should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. Hi, and welcome everyone to this episode of our Brain Bites podcast. I'm so excited that we have Estelle Gallo with us today. Estelle is a clinical specialist at Rusk Rehabilitation NYU in Langhorne. She um, also serves um, on the KT uh, Knowledge Translation Task Force for the locomotor CPG. And that's going to be the topic that we talk about today is really the locomotor CPG, um, some of the nuances that we can extrapolate and really how we can start to utilize this information in clinical practice, especially for individuals with brain injury. Um, So thanks, Estelle, for joining us today. Thank you very much for uh,
1: having uh, me and uh, talking about the locomotor CPG. It's always exciting. It's nice to have opportunities to uh, talk about it and discuss it.
0: Yeah, I think getting it out there in the world and kind of uh, helping clinicians um, tackle some of this literature and really integrate it into clinical practice is super helpful and super important. Um, so for those of people who aren't quite as familiar with the CPG itself, um, just kind of a brief overview that, you know, they did a nice literature review um, and talked about recommendations really for individuals who are six months or longer after injury. And the specific literature that they were looking at was individuals with TBI with stroke or with incomplete spinal cord injuries and really looking at which interventions are most recommended to address walking speed and walking distance um, with specific these specific interventions, um, and so Estelle, correct me if I'm wrong, but really the crux of the the CPG and kind of the, the take home messages is that uh, walking training, virtual reality, strength training, cycling, and circuit training really had the most uh, the most robust and kind of strongest evidence um, to address walking speed and walking distance for those individuals who are greater than six months post injury. Um, And those uh, interventions, such as balance training, body weight support treadmill training, robotic or exoskeleton training, didn't have quite as much strength of the literature behind it, um, and therefore weren't a high recommendation from the CPG um, outcomes. Is that about kind of the, the crux of it all? Yeah, that's, uh, that's correct. And to add to, uh, to it, because you
1: mentioned the strength training, the circuit training, but really from the CPG, the, the, the key uh, guidelines, key recommendation where, you know, there are two key recommendations of should, you know, people should be doing it. It's really the walking training at moderate to a high aerobic intensities, as well as the walking training with virtual reality, the strength training, the circuit training, and the balance training with virtual reality is more like clinicians may consider those. So the priority okay. is really about those top two of walking training at moderate to high aerobic intensity and walking training with a virtual reality. And I would say that the task force really pushed more for the, the first one of walking training at moderate to a high aerobic uh, intensities.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for clarifying that. So... I guess my first question then would be, you know, as the CPG um, talks about that, and as a member of the Knowledge Translation Task Force, really trying to help clinicians facilitate um, implementation of that Mm -hmm. higher intensity walking training, um, what kind of things on the Knowledge Translation Task Force do you find that clinicians perceive as barriers to implementing that recommendation?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question and indeed because it's really one of the first uh, things that the task force actually uh, completed was really to complete a barrier survey. So a uh, survey was designed as uh, sent to the, uh, via the ANPT. and we've identified uh, a few you know uh, barriers that were uh, listed by the clinicians, and the ones that were most um, often listed were really not enough physical assistance. Uh, patient unable to uh, tolerate high-intensity gait training, not enough time, not enough equipment, uh, some concern about patient uh, cognitive st- uh, status, cognition, you know, uh, patient willingness. And there was also definitely some concerns regarding the quality of movement, the safety, and really this big fear of, am I going to be hurting my patient? So uh, after identifying those barriers, we, we grouped them into, you can group those barriers into two overall uh, categories, one, it's really equipment and environment, and one is more about knowledge and belief. So having identified those barriers, the task force really tried to develop resources, uh, tools to really uh, help clinicians uh, overcome those, uh, those barriers. And all those resources uh, and tools are really available on our uh, web uh, page, you know, and we've organized them a little bit differently. So for example, you know, tools available to uh, address the knowledge and belief barriers, you can find uh, some tools under our CPG uh, resources where you can find the CPG uh, itself, uh, as well as a summary of the uh, action statement to really know exactly what the CPG is recommending. Uh, It also includes some uh, uh, CSM presentation that really again goes through the the CPG. And there's uh, frequently asked questions that really uh, use evidence to really answer those uh, common questions that people uh, have regarding: Am I going to hurt my patients? Should I be concerned regarding the quality of movement? And really listing the current evidence that can reassure clinicians that they're not going to hurt their patient, that they don't have to worry about the quality uh, of movement. We discuss also about fear of or- orthopedic injuries and really reinforcing the importance to protect uh the joints you know and also a great link too because one thing you know like what does it you know what does it entail to do high intensity gait training i think you cannot do high intensity gait training if you actually don't start by mon- monitoring a patient's uh, heart rate that's really the key you have this is where you have to start is. Mm-hmm. you walk with your patient on the treadmill or overground whatever is the easiest for you, even though there's preference for overground, but maybe at the beginning you need to be uh, on a treadmill, but you really need to check your patient's heart rate. And I think a, a great tool is to just go back to the basic of exercise prescription and guidelines for safe exercise prescription. And we have a nice tool that really reviewed those guidelines, because as you specialize in the field of neurology, sometimes we tend to forget about about those, you know, exercise guidelines that we've learned sometime in physical therapy school. And then as we practice, we tend to forget about them. So I think that's a, a great tool that's uh, available for uh, our uh, clinicians. And also, we have additional resources under there for specifically for clinician resources, you know, like a quick CPG reference uh, sheet. And we also have like a guide for a journal club. And that's something that you actually we use when uh, the, the Brain Injuries uh, Special Interest Group did uh, a journal club where we use that uh, tool to pick uh, an article where you link clinical questions to some reference uh, article. We also have, you know, um, a link to different podcasts that we did as well with different special interest groups where we discussed uh, the, the CPG with uh, spinal cord injury and uh, stroke uh, SIG uh also something that we're looking forward to that has not been posted yet will be like uh, a course you know on the entity synapse center which will really enable people to gain the knowledge and test their knowledge on the the cpg and what it means to do high intensity gay training so that's something that's uh being you know work on It's taking longer than what we had hoped for, but there are a lot of technical hurdles. You know, nothing happens very quickly and and simply, you know. Um, And then, you know, like regarding those barriers, regarding the environment, something that was done uh, as well was really to list equipment that people can buy, you know, like going from simple heart rate monitors to uh, ceiling lift. And we also incorporated some justification letter to... You know, uh, to uh, sell those pieces of equipment to your administration, so you get the funds to to get those equipments. But you know, equipment can go from very high handscatic single lift but also to just using a gate belt you know <laughs> to ensure your your patient safety. you know I know that gate belt sometimes I know in my culture with Rusk and at NYU sometimes it was not not looked like oh, you shouldn't be using gate belt but now like you know a gate belt to you know push your patient and you can ensure your their safety. I think that's a, a great and very affordable uh, tool you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So those are some of the things we have uh, available.
0: So, wow, that sounds like a lot. I know, that's a
1: lot of information, am I right? Yeah, that was a mouthful. It is,
0: it is, but, you know, I think it speaks to the importance of this topic, Um, and hopefully our audience recognizes that, you know, a lot of work has been done from the APTA, the AMPT, all these task force, and really it sounds like a thorough job. Um, So no stone has been left unturned. Um, There's really kind of no excuses to um, not be implementing this high intensity gait training um, with with this population. And so, you know, I think um, for our clinicians who are working with individuals with brain injury, it can be a little bit scary. It seems like there may be some challenges, but it sounds like The KT Task Force has done a nice job um, either dispelling some of those myths or helping, um, you know. Provide resources for clinicians um, to help them overcome some of those hurdles. So you mentioned that there's a lot of resources guided um, posted on the website. A lot of those resources are going to also be cross-posted on the brain injury SIG website so that clinicians have, um, you know, kind of one spot to to get a lot of resources for um, brain injury kind of uh, interventions and and research and things like that. Um, But really, I think the underlying Um, message, what I hear from you, all this information is so valuable and it really just underscores um, what we're finding in the literature and in clinical practice that this is really um, a a high priority for for our clients to improve um, so that utilizing these resources is really, really important. Um, So switching topics just a little bit here, um, you know, I work at a facility that has a ton of robotics, a ton of technology, um, and we are highly encouraged and to use them. And we find that they are often very helpful and beneficial um, and patients typically like these devices. Um, So I noticed that in the CPG, really there's not a ton of literature and it wasn't really a high recommendation um, to utilize those sorts of interventions to impact walking speed or distance. Um, So help me or some other clinicians who might be kind of now in the practice of using those devices kind of rationalize are these things that we should not use anymore or is there a place for these, you know, sorts of interventions or how do we kind of rationalize that in our heads?
1: No, I think that's a a great uh, question, especially because all those tools are Really available, and they're pushing those. And there is always like a love affair with like technology, you know. And even for patients, you know, like you have to be using fancy technology to feel like you have something that's valuable and skillful. But having said that, you know, it's really important for the for the uh, listener to remember that the CPG. The one that we have right now available for us is really for ambulatory patients, you know, who are chronic and they're capable of walking. So if you think about body weight supported treadmill system and our robotic, you know, system, uh, they're probably are providing assistance that the patients do not need since they're capable of walking. So it would be interesting for. Uh, clinicians to use—I mean, not to use those devices, but to check their participate their patient's heart rate because they're probably not able to achieve the intensity that's required for recovery because it's doing providing more assistance than what the patient uh, needs. So I think that's really how uh, body um, robotic or body, uh, you know, uh, body weights. Uh, Um, treadmill system but weight supported treadmill system for shorter a bit it's by really uh, preventing the patient from working as hard as they need to to foster uh, recovery and kind of diminishing removing the intensity piece that's uh, an active key ingredient for motor recovery so that's really where it's coming from it's not you know you don't have to throw it away but in for this patient population that's chronic and able to walk we know that it's not the tool that you should be uh, using and you really want them to be walking and use their abilities they don't need they don't need the help that those equipments are, are providing and therefore mm-hmm. removing the, the intensity I think that's
0: really the key uh, the key message here right right great thank you I, I think it, it does kind of bring back bring us back to remember, what the purpose of this CPG was, what the specific population that you were looking at and what the kind of outcomes and the goals were. Um, so th- I know for myself, there are times when, um, as you mentioned, I might have a patient who is chronic, but is not yet walking, um, mm-hmm. at a, you know, uh, a, a more functional capacity. And so maybe I still would utilize some of this equipment to see if we can get them, um, to be a better ambulator or more independent ambulator. Um, and then if they can, as soon as, as possible, get them off that equipment, like you mentioned, and start cranking up the intensity to then address their walking speed and their distance. Um, so I think it's helpful for clinicians to recognize what their specific goals around ambulation might be for a particular patient, um, and then help determine what direction they need to go in or what best intervention um, would be for that patient. Um, now, the the CPG also focused um, and chose to focus on literature that address individuals who are more than six months after injury, kind of more that chronic phase. Um, so, if clinicians are working more in an acute setting and they're seeing clients that are a little bit more acutely injured, um, do you have any recommendations about kind of where they should look in the literature or what kind of literature they should rec- they should go to to guide their interventions based of, uh, you know around walking?
1: No, sure, that's a great question. So one thing, there actually, uh, there is a CPG uh, in the work, you know, for uh, the subacute population. But uh, what's interesting too is, you know, the task force was uh, working on the locomotor CPG, but we also got involved in um, the national campaign of Intensity Matters. So there is also a webpage uh, on Intensity Matters that's purely focused on, on intensity and trying to independently of neurological uh, diagnosis or level of chronicity. So that's where I would uh, recommend our listener to go to and to check out this intensity matter uh, webpage. And there you'll find some literature on uh, acute and subacute population. I have to say though, the literature again, is mostly around uh, the stroke population, not so much on the brain TBI. Uh, population but again i think the one thing that the cpg did nicely is to really group those diagnoses together uh highlighting how the recovery principles uh would be the the same you know between spinal cord injury traumatic brain injury and and stroke so i think people who work with a brain injury population can go into that literature and feel confident that they can use some of those principles with uh, with their uh patients you know so that's really where i would uh Recommend our listener go to to go to to check out this in intensity matter uh, webpage, which also will incorporate uh, wonderful uh, resources, which will help will be helpful too for clinicians.
0: Right. Yeah. For those of us who work with individuals with TBI, um, we're used to looking in other sources of literature, yeah. recognizing that there's a positive literature specific to especially acute TBI. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think you bring up a good point. You know. We shouldn't be shy about utilizing theories or hypotheses or principles that are present for other neurologic populations um, and extrapolating that information and taking a little bit of uh, a liberty in in addressing it with the TBI population. Um, You know, I think for that, um, for right now, that's kind of the best we've got. Um, And so, you know, I don't think that we as clinicians, as a body can say, you know, there is no literature, so we don't know what to do, or there is no literature, Mm -hmm. so we're just going to do whatever the heck we feel like. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I think trying to still be kind of evidence-based Um, even if it's not the perfect evidence, I think, you know, we Mm -hmm. still need to move in that direction. Um, So, you know, we've gotten a lot of good information from you today about kind of some of the basic principles of the CPG, um, application of it to the clinic, some resources that we've, we could use. Um, Do you have anything else you want to add kind of anything else that you feel is relevant for, for clinicians that are working with folks with TBI um, in utilizing some of this literature or some of this evidence? I think one
1: one thing that I can refer our listeners to is that there will be, you know, because I think uh, having some uh, visual aids really help clinicians see about how does it look, because it seems very like something like people say, is it really skilled physical therapy? Like, I mean, it's just walking with a patient. So I think it seems a little bit dumb like this at the first degree. But uh, um, we'll have some uh, videos, you know, uh, either way on the, probably on the YouTube channel, but as well on the website, you know, where if you go on the website, you'll have links to some videos that can really help our clinicians say, "How does it look like? You know, it can come in many uh, shape and forms. So we'll have little vignettes to illustrate how it can, uh, actually, this is how it looks, uh, patient doing high-intensity gait training. It doesn't look pretty. It looks, oh, would I do that with my patient? So I think it can really help clinicians to feel a bit better about themselves. Uh, We also have some entire case studies that really show some good illustration of with a brand new patient, where do you start, how does this look like? Because you may decide, I'm gonna do high intensity gait training. I think it's important to set also uh, our listeners expectations you might not achieve it after just one or two sessions it's a work of labor and dedication you know it's going to take some time some effort maybe some tears now probably no tears but <laughs> <laughs> definitely some sweat you know um, and it's it's going to be a, a, a there, there'll be a learning curve you know so it's not going to be an, an easy road but I seeing those case studies and how clinicians of uh, where did they start and how did they uh, progress their, their patient will be, uh, I think, uh, helpful, you know, um, but I think for clinicians to just start monitoring their patient's heart rate is a really, really good place to, to start and not being afraid to let your patients make mistakes and not look good as long as they're walking, they're somewhat successful. And uh, achieving that target heart rate, and also being patient with ourselves. You know, it's not. It might be a change of practice, and change does not happen very quickly. But at least setting the right intention
0: is the good place to uh, to start. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think just having kind of these ideas in the back of our minds, and kind of pulling them more to the front of our minds um, and trying to really um, have that intention, even if you don't get there right away. I think that's a huge change in our thought process and our culture um, as practicing clinicians. So I think that's really sound advice. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you so much for all of your information and all of your inputs. Um, I'm really excited about this, and I'm starting to see a lot of changes in practice in my clinic. Um, I'm hoping that other clinicians are seeing the same thing, and ultimately we're seeing better outcomes for our patients. That's why we're, that's why we're doing this, right? Um, so, you know, thank you so much again for your time. Um, I hope our listeners appreciate all this and um, don't forget to go over to those websites and look at those resources um, and really don't be afraid to make some change in your practice, guys. Uh, We can kind of keep pushing forward and help our, our clients get better. Thank you very much. All right. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Brain Bites. Make sure to follow the Brain Injury SIG on Facebook and Twitter.